after burying his beloved wife Sarah, Avram turns his attention to his son, Yitzchak, and assumes the parental responsibility of finding a suitable wife for Yitzchak. In order to accomplish this goal, he turns to his loyal and faithful servant, Eliezer. He gives him clear and stern instructions. And not just instructions, he makes Eliezer take a solemn oath, a shvuah, to follow those instructions. And the essence, the crux of that mission, of those instructions, are, as we read in Perch of Dalid, Psukim Gimel through Dalid, Asher lo isha knani, asher Do not look for a wife, do not find Yitzchak a wife from among the daughters of the people of Canaan, the people that we were currently living in at the moment. Rather, he says, Ki el artzi, Rather, go back to the place of my birth, where I grew up, where my family is, as Rashi says, kazdim, and there, there you will find, hopefully, a suitable wife for my son Yitzchak. And a number of the Mepharshim are quite bothered by this instruction. Why divide you know, the population groups among either Eretz Canaan or Orkazdim? After all, if the issue is that Avram is the father of monotheism, the shliach of Hashem, trying to bring the message of Hashem to the world, we can understand why he wouldn't want to find a daughter of somebody who is Ovid of Odazara. However, we have no indication that the people in Orkazdim were any less idolatrous than the people in Canaan. We know from, Aaron's, from Avram's origins and all the Madrashim and his life story that you know, he had to run away from there because they were also equally idolatrous. So if the command had been to be specifically finding a girl with certain character traits, that we could understand. But why seemingly arbitrarily divide the population into those who are unsuitable from Canaan versus those who are suitable from Orkazdim? It doesn't seem to make any sense. It seems to be arbitrary and even illogical. Among the Mepharshim who address this issue is the Ran, Nisim, in his Sefer, the Joshua Saran, in the fifth drasha. This sefer is most well known as one of the critical works of medieval Jewish philosophy, one of the great Baalei Mashav among the Rishonim. However, contained in many of the drashos are also beautiful parshanut, beautiful explications of various psukim. And the Ran addresses exactly this question as he interprets the psukim that we just read. And the context of the Ran is discussing the axiomatic belief which he subscribes to so many mainstream Rishonim in that view, which is, of course, well known to us, of the absolute inviolability of Bechir Chavshis, the belief that every person is ultimately endowed with free will, and therefore has responsibility for all decisions that he or she makes. However, says the Ran, despite the fact that we believe ultimately that everyone has a choice, and everyone has free choice, we can't deny, he says, Lo the people are often contained with inclinations, proclivities, one way or another. Sometimes people are drawn naturally to good midos, other people to more negative midos, unfortunately. And he says, not only do we have to acknowledge that reality, he adds to that, that typically, that these are more often than not, the kind of things which are inherited, that are passed down from parent to child, because they are, to some extent, either psychological or physiological or biological, they are natural, and therefore they are passed on. 
We could add, although it doesn't, it's not clear this is exactly what the Ran means, that it may not just be nature, but it could also be nurture. If a person um, is raised in a certain environment, then the parents certainly can have yield a strong influence, not necessarily genetic, hereditarily, but even just by the values that are imbued, the type of education that a person receives at home. Be that as it may, says the Ran, we have to take a step back and acknowledge, he says, that there are two types of mitzvos, or not observing mitzvos or transgressing of eros, there are two types of negative impacts that not following Ratzon Hashem can have. Sometimes, he says, when we don't follow the will of Hashem, either actively or passively, Yasu Roshem Beguf Uba Nefesh Yachad. It's terrible because it not only impacts our soul, but it impacts us, as they say, either physically or psychologically as well. However, there are other averos, as bad as they are, but Lo Yasu Roshem Rakla Nefesh Bilvad. They only impact our soul, but not anything more physiological or psychological. Says the Ran, given that background, only the types of Averos, which are also what he calls physical, guf, are the kind that can be passed on, unfortunately, from parent to child. But an Avera that is just spiritual, so the soul, because it has no physical component, says the Ran, the soul is not the kind of thing that can be passed on from one generation to the next, from parent to child. But if it's the type of Avera, the type of sin, which has become and had an impact physically, psychologically, physiologically, then in fact, yes, it can be passed on from parent to child. What are examples of Averos which are so serious that not only do they impact the soul, but they also impact the mind and body? Says the Ran, he gives a number of examples. Sinna, Kinna, Achzarius, Rechilos, hatred, jealousy, cruelty, slander, Uchadomeim says the Ran, all sorts of bad midos or benam lechavero averos. It's dafka the benam lechavero and the bad midos says the Ran, which are not only spiritually problematic, bad for the soul, but also bad for the body, physiologically, psychologically, and therefore those can be passed on. In light of this, he says, now we understand Avraham's command, his instructions, and the shvua he makes Eliezer take. As bad as it was with the people who came from Orkazdim, says the Ran, en hachanami. Lavan was of the Avodah Zarah, Basul over the Avodah Zarah, but nevertheless, But Avodah Zarah, as bad as it is, is a spiritual defect, and therefore not necessarily going to be passed on in any hereditary or genetic way to the children. However, he says, when it comes to the people of Canaan, that was much, much worse, because the people of Canaan had terrible midos, Tchunos nafshios, dangerous, terrible, deleterious, bad midos, and that's the kind of thing that could be passed on. And therefore, says Avraham, that's what I'm worried about. That cannot ever come into our family. That's incompatible with my legacy and the type of person that Yitzchak is and needs to be. And therefore, we want to find a girl with the right emuna, but we have to start avoiding all those bad midos. And that's what was in Canaan, and that would be likely passed on. So we learn a valuable lesson about parenting and marriage from this decision of Avraham. After the devastating passing of his beloved wife, Sarah. The Torah describes how Avraham not only cries over and eulogizes Sarah, but then begins the process of securing a proper burial place for his wife. He approaches the Bnei Ches, and he says the following, I am an alien, a visitor, but also a citizen or a resident with you. Please give me this place, a grave, where I can bury my wife, Sarah. The phrase that Avram chooses to describe himself as both a ger v'toshav is a very difficult one. 
After all, it seems to be contradictory. The phrases seem to be mutually exclusive. A ger means a stranger. A toshev means a resident or a citizen. One can be a ger, one can be a toshev. But how could one be both of these at the same time? Rashi actually quotes two interpretations. Rashi's first interpretation is simply that it means I am a ger coming from another land, but now I am a toshev, I have settled among you. Rashi then quotes what he describes as a Midrashic explanation, that is to say, I can be either or. If you want, I'll be like a guest, like a ger, and I'll pay for the land, but if you're not willing to sell it to me, then I will act like a toshav, like a resident, and I'll take it without paying for it, since it is really my right, as Hashem has promised me this land. Either interpretation of Rashi assumes that, as we said, one can't be both at the same time. And therefore Rashi in both of his interpretations, somewhat reinterprets these phrases in order to harmonize them. However, in a celebrated drasha, delivered initially in 1964, Soloveitchik explained this phrase in a very different way. And his beautiful thoughts are included in the celebrated work of Rav Avram Bezdin, summarized in the volume one of his Reflections of the Rav. And there, in the Rav's voice, we learn the following. Salvechik suggested, unlike Rashi, that in fact Avram was saying that he is both a Ger and a Toshav at the same time. And, said the Rav, not only was Avram describing his current situation, but in fact was reflecting and expressing the dual status of Jews throughout the ages, who, like Avram at that moment, lived in predominantly non-Jewish societies. On the one hand, Avram was saying, I am a Toshav, I am a resident, I am a citizen. I care, like every other citizen, about the welfare of society. I'm involved in digging wells and other acts of commerce. I'm a patriot, advancing the common good. As citizens, and like Avraham, Jews assume social and political obligation to contribute to the general welfare of society, joining as brothers with their fellow citizens and shouldering responsibility. The Rav marshaled as support for this a number of sources, including a Pesach in Yirmiyahu, Perak Kavtes, we read that we are, Navi tells us, shalom ha'ir, shama. You should be pursuing the peace and the betterment of the city, wherever it is, Hashem says, that I have sent you to live. Hegleisi shama. And similarly, in Tarshav al we read in the Mishnah in Perkyavos, in the third chapter, Every Jew, in whichever society he finds himself, whichever country he lives, should be davening for the welfare and the success of that society. All of that is on the one hand. We are a Toshav. However, we are also a Ger, a stranger, a visitor, a guest. This, said Rosalvechik, describes the Jews from a religious realm. No matter how connected we are politically and otherwise, on a spiritual and religious level, we always remain a stranger. We have a unique bris, a unique covenant with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. It started with Avraham, and was consecrated at Sinai 3,000 plus years ago. We have a unique identity with unique responsibilities, which inevitably set the Jews apart. In fact, in the insightful words of none other than Bilam, we read, Hein'am levadad yishkon. No matter where we are, no matter where we live, we are always a nation that lives alone, that lives apart. Rosalvechik, having established the ability for these two ideas to coexist, is then critical of anyone who chooses one over the other, who thinks that a Jew can live as just one 
or the other, especially Sedar Soloveitchik, he's upset at those secular Jews who have, in his words, purchased their acceptance into general society by abandoning their unique roots and identity. And what is this unique identity? How can we summarize it in a few salient points? Soloveitchik suggested the following. We are a gear in the following three critical ways. First are the mitzvos, which set us apart in the realm of deed. Secondly are our emunos videos, our doctrines and beliefs, which are certainly different in our conception of God, conception of the world, various aspects of morality. We have simply different beliefs. And last but not least, Salvechik added, in our future expectations in the coming of Mashiach and the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. Other religions, as we know, also have beliefs of a Messiah and eschatology. But ours are completely different than theirs. And we part from polite society, even if we generally support and are involved with them, even if we are a Toshav with them. But we part in these three critical ways. We are constantly and always a ger in these three ways. Our mitzvos, our amunos, and our vision for the future. It is worth noting, in conclusion, that this inspiring life message that Avraham communicates in this brief phrase, this message for Jews throughout history and especially those living in the Gola, it's the order I would suggest is particularly deliberate and fits beautifully with Rosalvichik's idea. We are Ger Toshav, yes we have to be both, but Ger comes first. First we have to remember that we're different. First we have to remember our unique roots, our unique past, our unique future and our unique destiny. Only when we realize first that we are a ger can we truly be a toshav. With mutual respect, they for us and us for them, can we join shoulder to shoulder in advancing the cause of society wherever we find ourselves. A central storyline in Parshas Chayisara is the Torah's very detailed description in Perch of the pursuit of a shidduch for Yitzchak, the attempt on behalf of Avraham to find his son, a proper woman to marry, to find a wife for Yitzchak. And incredibly, in the Torah's very detailed description, we have a prominent role given to Eliezer, Avraham's faithful servant, his slave, who is the one tasked with this mission. However, it's worth noting that the Torah text in this entire parsha never refers to Eliezer by name. Predominantly just refers to him as the slave, Eved, or sometimes with other descriptive terms, but never actually Eliezer. And it's possible that this somewhat mysterious attitude that the Torah takes to Eliezer is the source for different approaches in Chazal that we find in the Medrash Rabbah on our Parsha, in Parsha Nuntes, where we have different descriptions of Eliezer, which if not outright contradictory, are at the very least intention and painting a somewhat complex portrait. On the one hand, the Medrash comments on our initial description of who Avraham is tasking with this mission, where it says, Eliezer, as we're understanding it, is referred to as not only the slave, the Avdo, but who is he? Zakan Beso, the most senior member of Avraham's house. Who's in charge of everything. And the Medrash notes uh, and is struck by both of these phrases. What is Zakan Beso? Why is that relevant to know that he's the senior member of Avram's house? 
And why is zakan? Why choose that word? So it says the Medrash, it's actually a play on words. Zakan beiso is a play on words and refers to ziv ekonin. Zakan ziv ekonin. Kind of sounds the same. Meaning to say that ekonin, the appearance of Eliezer was incredibly similar. He really appeared and resembled shalo domelo. His countenance, his appearance, his physical appearance was very, very similar to Avram's. They looked almost the same. In fact, the Medrash in a later chapter says that sometimes people would see, Avr- see Eliezer and mistakenly think that they had seen Avraham. They looked so similar. But then the Medrash continues and says it wasn't just a physical resemblance. The next phrase in the Apostle, the Medrash seems to be bothered. You know, it's nice to say that Eliezer was an important servant, a slave, but to say a Moshel Bechola Shalom, that sounds like what you would describe the master of the house, the head of the house, ha Moshel, the ruler. How could an Evid, as important as he be, be described as a Moshel? So the Medrash actually explains that whatever Eliezer's level of responsibility in the house and for Avram's uh, property and fortunes, this Pasuk is actually on a deeper level referring to Eliezer's mastery, Bechol Asher Lo, the lower refers to not to Avram, but tell Eliezer himself, shalit It means that Eliezer was a master of himself. He had mastery of all of his inclinations and his urges. He mastered his own Yetzirah. And then the Medrash adds, Kamoso, just like Avraham is similarly understood and described by Chazal as someone who mastered his Yetzirah, so too Eliezer did the same. And here we have an incredible description of the Medrash. Describing Eliezer as not only physically resembling Avraham, but more importantly, spiritually resembling Avraham, reaching a similar level to Avraham, Moshel Yitzro. Just like Avraham controlled his Yitzhara, so did Eliezer. So this sounds very positive. However, in the same section of the Medrash, it points our attention to a Pasuk that comes just a few verses later, in which Eliezer responds to the mission and the oath that he had to take, and he is described here in Pasuk Hay, V'yom Re'elav Ha'eved, the slave then responds. Says the Medrash, why do we need to repeat that he's the slave? The Torah already introduced the fact that Avram's talking to his Eved, and now we have the response. We could know on our own that it's referring to the same person responding. Why mention Eved, again, it seems almost gratuitous and unnecessary. In the Medrash, in the very next uh, paragraph, and here in the same section of Bereshit Rabbah, Parsha Nuntes, sees this second reference of the term Eved, the second use of the term Eved, as a pejorative and a negative judgment about Eliezer, connecting it to the Pesach in Hosea, in Parak Bet, which says, Kenan biyado mo'oznei mirma. There's a, a dishonest, thieving salesman who has in his hands a mo'oznei mirma, you know, dishonest, inaccurate weights, so that he could take advantage of people when he's selling them things in the shuk. La'ashok ahev, in order to oppress, to take advantage of someone who's beloved. Now this is obviously a very, very negative pasuk. Says the Medrash, that pasuk is referring to Eliezer. Kenan doesn't just mean a salesman, but Kenan means from Kenan, a Kenanite. And Eliezer comes from that family. Furthermore, what is biyado ma'aznei mirma? That he has dishonest weights, he's going to take advantage of someone? Says the Medrash remarkably, a chiddush? Eliezer was Yoshev Umashkiles Bito. Eliezer really was hoping that Avram would let his daughter, that Eliezer's daughter, could be the one who marries Yitzchak. A merger. Let my family be the one who inherit and join Yitzchak and inherit Avraham's legacy and fortune. 
he was really conniving and thinking about how he could get his daughter the Shirach, not who Avram was looking for. Amazing. And all, why? Lashok Ahev, in order to take advantage of the beloved one of Yitzchak. And that's why, actually, the next thing, what, is the, what does the Pasuk say? That, Yitzchak, that Eliezer says to Avram, maybe she won't want to come. Maybe whoever I find, Ulai lo to'aveh. Why was he saying that? Because he's already plotting and trying to put into Avram's mind, maybe I won't find someone, if I find someone, maybe she won't want to come. Why was he doing this? Not because he was sincerely worried, because he was trying to plant doubts in Avram's mind, already subliminally allude to the fact that maybe my daughter should be the one who marries your son. The Medrash continues that it seems like Avram kind of skunked out and could tell that Eliezer had these plans and told him nothing's doing. But whether or not Avram realized or not, we know that Hashkacha made sure that Yitzhak marries Rivka. But more interesting to me, it's the fact that this Medrash, coming right on the heels of the previous Medrash, is very, very different. This doesn't make it sound like Yitzhak was such, uh, that Eliezer was such a tzaddik or so loyal, but in fact the opposite. He is, you know, conniving and uh, perhaps uh, not so good. And, uh, the answer is probably something of both. We see that Eliezer himself is a complex personality, and perhaps on some level many of us are. We're all complex. And you see here very different impressions of Eliezer in these Midrashim. The Mishnah in Perkeyavos, Perkei, Mishnah Gimel, famously tells us that Avram was tested ten times. The Mishnah itself does not list what those ten tests were, but Rashi there explains, listing all of them, and explains that the tenth and final and climactic and most challenging test was the Akedah, the story we read about at the end of last week's Parsha. Interestingly, however, there are other Mepharshim who suggest that perhaps the Akedah wasn't the last or even the most difficult of all of Avraham's tests. Rav Dessler, in his well-known work of Musar and Machshava, the Mechtav Me'eliyahu, in the fourth section, the fourth volume, Chelek Dalid, Rav Dessler has a beautiful essay in which he explains, he opens up his essay and makes the point, According to Rav Dessler, the greatest of the Avram's Nisyonos was not what happened at the end of last week's Parsha with the Akedah, rather what happened at the beginning of this week's Parsha, the need to bury Sarah. And in fact, as Rav Dessler goes on, it wasn't just the death of Sarah, the need to bury her, but to deal with all the shenanigans of the Bnei Ches until he's finally able to secure at a great price the Ma'aras HaMachpela. Now, even though Rav Dessler does not quote him, presumably he is actually working off of and based off of the much earlier comment of Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah, in his commentary to Perkyevos, argues on Rashi's list. And there Rabbeinu Yonah lists of the ten Nisyonos that the Akedah was actually number nine, and that the tenth and final of the tests was burying Sarah. So Rav Dessler doesn't quote Rav Ben Yonah, but clearly he is assuming that list as well, that there was a final test, that of Chaye Sarah, of finding the Kfura, the place to bury Sarah, and all that was involved in that. But what is unclear when you just read Ben Yonah, although he does say it briefly, but perhaps not with any elaboration, is what exactly was the test of burying Sarah? And how could it be, on any level, comparable to the test of the Akedah? So here, and this is the theme of Rav Dessler's essay, he explains as follows. Despite the emotional roller coaster, despite his obvious and overwhelming grief, Avram was able to keep his cool and not get angry or snap at the Bnei Ches, even as they went back and forth and changed their asking price, 
and gave him a difficult time despite knowing that really the land was his and he had a right to bury his wife there. Think about the roller coaster that Avram had gone through. What an emotional and difficult and draining, intense time. All those, all those days walking towards the mountain with the tremendous fear and dread of having to kill his own son, almost actually killing his son, lifting the knife up, the last minute reprieve as the angel tells him to stop, then finally walking home, presumably all excited to tell Sarah that everything is okay. Sarah, as far as he knew, didn't even know about the Akedah. And yet, you know, I'm sure any husband would want to tell his wife, now that the story had ended well, what had happened, only to find out that while he was gone, Sarah had died. According to Chazal, she died because she was told, before he could get home, what had happened. Unclear even if, according to Chazal, Avram knew that. But if he would have known that, one could only imagine that that would have compounded his grief. But even if he didn't know why Sarah died, just if it seemed random to him, but what an emotional roller coaster. The dread of the Akeda, the relief of the reprieve, and then coming home to see and to find his beloved wife Sarah having died. And then, as the Torah tells us, he right away goes to secure a burial to give her the Kavarachra and the proper respect. And he has to deal with all the difficulties of the Bnei Ches and the negotiations and the handling back and forth. This was a, quite a challenging and difficult situation for Avram. And yet, despite it all, says Rav Dassler, in all of his interactions and conversations with the Bnei Ches, he keeps his cool, he keeps his derech eretz. Says Rav Dassler, ki klal gadol b'derech eretz, because Avram knew the basic rule. Just because I'm in pain, just because I'm having a bad day, doesn't mean that anybody else has to suffer. And it's easy to say, and it's so obviously correct, but as we all know, much much harder to actually live out. So often when we're stressed, when we're in a bad mood, when we're depressed, when bad things have happened to us, it's much easier to get angry or to snap at other people. And yet, Avraham was the personification of Derech Eretz, and therefore he never lost his cool, treated them with respect and decency, even though they didn't deserve it, and even though he was under tremendous stress and in tremendous grief. The Medrash in Vayukra Rabbah, Parshates, famously teaches Derech Eretz, Kadmah Torah. And in a variation of that, in the third chapter, Perkyavos, we learn, Im Ein Derech Eretz, Ein Torah. Two very famous rabbinic teachings about the absolute, absolute essential nature, the prerequisite of Derech Eretz for any meaningful growth in Torah, any meaningful relationship with Torah, and greatness and connection to Hashem. Says the Mechdem Eliyahu, and we know this intuitively, but he makes the point so clearly and so powerfully. The truest test of our Derech Eretz is not on a good day, and not when things are going well, and when we're calm. The truest test is when we're under stress, when we're grieving, when we're angry, when we're dealing with our own issues. And then, despite that fact, we still treat other people the way they're supposed to be treated. Says Rav Dessler, Avraham exemplified this. He was under stress, he was grieving, and yet his midos shined through. He treated everyone, including the Bnei Ches, with great respect. And therefore, this is a tremendous musr, a tremendous lesson for us. We should look to Avram and learn from him in so many ways, including Cesar Dessler, and the tremendous dedication he had to being a mensch, to treating everyone with their charetz, even when things were difficult, even when he was having a bad day, even when he was stressed, he made sure everyone else still was treated the right way. Derech Eretz for Avram truly was Kadmah Torah.
After Eliezer successfully negotiates the Shidduch between Yitzchak and Rivka, the time has come for Eliezer and Rivka to return back to the house of Avraham so that Rivka can meet her future husband Yitzchak, they can get married, and the next chapter of Jewish history can begin. As they are about to take leave from Rivka's home, we read in Perchav Dalid, Pasach Samach, V'yavarchu es Rivka, they blessed Rivka, Suel, his uh, friends, family, the servants, everyone there. They blessed Rivka. She was about to leave. And they told her, Our sister, may you be may you be in come in terms of your family, your future generations, your progeny, your destiny, into the thousands and thousands of people. May your offspring inherit even the gate of your tzfos, huge success, huge bracha, all with generosity expressed towards Rivka in her pending and upcoming shidduch and marriage to Yitzchak. Fascinatingly, in the beginning of Mesechah Kala, Chazal teaches us that this posuk is a remez for the idea of sheva brachos. As the Gemara there puts it, kalablo bracha asura l'ba'ala, that a bride, even if you've done all the other halachos, in terms of creating the marriage, but nevertheless, kalablo bracha, without additional brachos, is prohibited to her husband. Husband and wife are not allowed to be intimate, they cannot consummate the marriage without bracha. In fact, the Gemara goes on to compare it, even though the comparison is not exact or precise, but the Gemara there compares it to a woman who is a nida. And just like a woman who is a nida is prohibited to her husband unless she would go to the mikvah, so too, says the Gemara, without the berkas chasanim, without the sheva brachos, you are also prohibited, husband and wife, from being intimate. This is a, a remez, if not an outright source, for the idea that we call sheva brachos. And I'd like to uh, just review a few, a few of the interesting uh, points uh, that relate to sheva brachos, both classical uh, t- timeless issues, as well as perhaps one even more somewhat modern or timely issue. So first of all, a very important halacha, as many of us know, is that you need a minion to say Sheva Brachos. The Rambam and the Tur brings this down in Evan Ezer, Simon Samach Beis, Paskins that not only do you need a minion, but that the Chasson can actually count towards one of the minion. However, the Prisha brings down from others who disagree with this. The question is, what would that Machlokas be about? How come sometimes we would say that you need 10 plus, but in this case, the Chasson actually can be part of the minion, 9 plus the Chasson. So the Nitziv, in his commentary, Hamek Shela, suggests that this gets to the heart of what the purpose of Sheva Brachos is. That is to say, he assumes that it's really a way of being Mesameach, the Kala, specifically the Kala. And therefore, since the Chasson himself is obligated to uh, bring joy and happiness and be Mesameach, his now wife, so it makes sense that he should be part of the Minyan since he's also part of the Mitzvah of being Mesameach the Kala. Uh, a different approach is uh, brought down in the name of the Briskarov, uh, the Grizz. And he suggests uh, that perhaps it relates not to what the purpose of the Sheva Brachos are, as we just saw previously, but rather, what's the reason for Minyan? If we can understand why we have a Minyan, then we may understand why it would make sense or not for the groom, for the Chassan to be counted. And the Grizz's, the Briskarov's idea is based on a position that he accepts, it seems, of Rabbi Kiv Eger, who distinguishes between Shavar Brachos 
and Birkas HaGomel. Birkas HaGomel, if a person survives something that's life-threatening, they also need to make a Birkas HaGomel to thank Hashem. So according to Rabbi Kivager, at least, we accept the position we've seen until now that the Chosan can't count towards the Minyan and Sheva Brachos. However, the person making the Birkas HaGomel cannot count towards the Minyan. At least according to Rabbi Kivager, you need a Minyan, 10 people, plus the person making the Birkas HaGomel. So why make that distinction? So the Grizz explains because it depends why you need a Minyan. In the case of the Sheva Brachos, he assumes the Sheva Brachos are a Dover Shebegdusha, like laning, uh, or like Kaddish or Kedusha, or something we do in Shul. And therefore, just like you only need 10 men, you don't need the Chazan plus 10 others, that would be sufficient to have the Chazan as part of the 10 in Sheva Brachos. Because Agoma, however, is not about Dover Shebegdusha, but rather it's about thanking Hashem in front of 10 people. And therefore, it would make sense that the person who's thanking can't be part of the 10, because we want 10 people to hear the Bracha. And if the person who's making the Bracha is part of the Minyan, only nine people would hear. So that's one issue which we've ex- examined in a little depth. The fact that you need a minion and that it seems like the consensus is, if necessary, the chasson should, uh, can, excuse me, be part of that count. Another question is, who, who makes uh, the brachos? And we know that the custom is that it's not the groom, it's not the chasson, even though the Arishonim, including the Mordechai, says really the chasson should. So if that's the case, how come our minog is that other people make the brachos? So there's different theories. Some Rishonim say because not all chassanim know how to make the brachos, we don't embarrass them. Others say he's preoccupied with, you know, he's very in love, he's just getting married, he won't be able to have uh, kavana. Uh, and then a third approach says that the bracha is not really on the kala, it's on both of them, the chassan and the kala, we're wishing them both well, and therefore it would be somewhat unseemly for him to be giving himself uh, a bracha. Uh, a third issue is when to make the brachos. Uh, we are familiar that we do them at the end of what you and I call the chuppah, the canopy and the poles. But it should be noted that the Rambam feels that you should make the brachos before uh, the chassan enters the chuppah, before they go under the chuppah. And the Beis Yosef suggests that the Rambam sees that it's really a kind of a birchas ha-mitzvah, just like all birchas ha-mitzvahs are done before you do the mitzvah. So evidently, he suggests the Rambam felt you do these brachos before you go to the chuppah, before you do the gemar mitzvah. Other Rishonim, such as the Ran, say no, it can even be after, at the end of Nisuin, after the Chuppah, because they're not a bracha of mitzvah, but rather a bracha of praise, a bracha of Shavach Vahoda. Last but not least, just to mention a very interesting 20th century machlokes about microphones. And uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein, among others, but most well known, he was lenient. He felt it's okay to make a bracha like this in the presence of a microphone, because since you hear the voice coming out of the microphone simultaneously with when the person's making the bracha, making the bracha, that counts as you hear the right voice. However, other poskim, most prominently of Shlom Zalman Orbach, felt that this was a mistake. Shlom Zalman was adamant, and therefore common practice is to try to be machmir, either not to use a microphone, or to have at least a minion of people who could hear the brachos even without the microphone because they're sitting close up.